You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Philippians chapter 1. We'll read together verses 3 through 11. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's open together in prayer. Our Father, we quiet our hearts now before Your Word that we might hear Your voice. It is in this book and this book alone that You have spoken authoritatively and confidently. And we ask, God, that You would come now to teach us through Your Word that we might see more of You, more of Your purpose for us, and that we might learn more about what it means to walk and to live Christ. We ask Your blessing on this time, Your presence here with us now. In Jesus' name, Amen. I would venture to guess that if I could look into the hearts and minds of every person seated here this morning, that I would find probably a majority of you, a vast majority of you, would be able to say that you are in some form or in some way dissatisfied with your prayer life. I want to ask you to raise your hand if that would describe you, but I think that the reality is that more than we like to admit, Christians really struggle with the subject of prayer not understanding what to pray for or what prayer is about, but just the the outworking, the discipline, the day-to-day discipline of what it means to pray and to walk with God in prayer. Now, not everybody struggles. There are the occasion, There is the occasional person who just doesn't struggle with it at all. Now, maybe that's because you've given up the fight. You just don't pray, so it's not a struggle for you. But there are other people for whom prayer is just as natural as breathing. And they just they just pray, and they're always praying. And they always feel like that connection with God is there and it's just the outflow of the Spirit, the outworking of their life. It's natural to them. They don't struggle with it. It's it's just like breathing. I have met such people. In uh, in my first year of Bible college, I was introduced to a godly older woman. She was about 80 years old when I arrived at school. And her name was Miss Dixon. She never married. It was the Dixon family, her mother and father, who had actually donated the land that the college now sits on. And they had a large farm there. Their farmhouse became the first dorm, the first kitchen, the first classroom, the first rec center, the first gathering place, the first chapel of what is today Miller College of the Bible. Small little farmhouse, wasn't that big, just a few students. And they grew all the food for the students and they came there back in the 20s. And uh, one one young, he was a young man at the time, elderly when I met him, but one young man taught all of the classes there in Miller College of the Bible and started that school. And Miss Dixon her parents owned the farmhouse, and she, um, after graduating from the school and going a couple years, she became a missionary in Africa. And then she came back to Pambram and began working at the school. And 
uh, helping cook and clean and do some of the administration. And she even taught a couple of the classes that had nothing to do with the, the Bible instruction, biblical instruction or anything like that. And uh, she would she was a woman who was committed to prayer. And I think that not having a husband for all of the, those years, she was able to focus on really developing her walk with God and her prayer life. And at the beginning of every school year, she would have Bible school students over in groups of five to eight, six, seven, eight, something like that, until she had had all of the first-year students over to her house. And when you came over, she would serve you dessert and tea or coffee. And she sat down with a small group of Bible school students and learned all about them. Learned your name, where you were from, what you did, how you got saved, about your family, your upbringing, your home church. And she was taking notes. And for all of the first-year Bible school students, she had a list of every student and what she could pray for for those students. Now, I'm from the first time that I met Miss Dixon, I kind of had a special relationship with her. When I graduated from third year, actually, I was over at her house because I used to go over periodically just to visit with her. And uh, when I graduated third year, before graduation weekend, I was over at her house visiting, having tea with her, and she said, where's your mom staying when she comes up for graduation? Where's she staying? And I said, I don't know, probably the girl's dorm. She said, I'd like her to stay at my house. She didn't make that offer to every Bible school student, but she did for my mom. She took my mom in and just exercised hospitality and prayed with her and fed her meals and kept her room clean and all of that stuff. And my mom grew to love this this godly woman. When I would go over to visit with Miss Dixon, you'd sit down, you'd have tea, you'd have cookies or some sort of dessert, and then before you'd leave, she'd always say, let's have a word of prayer together before you ever left her house. And then she would pray. She didn't expect you to pray. She just wanted to pray for you. And she would start, oh, Father, And when she said that, it was like all of the concerns and the anxieties and everything about the whole world just vanished. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that it was a worshipful experience just to listen to Miss Dixon pray. Because whenever she prayed, you felt like you were being ushered in by somebody who had spent hundreds of hours at the throne of grace. And you felt like somebody was grabbing your hand and taking you right to the foot of the throne and praying And you didn't pray after Miss Dixon prayed because there was nothing left to pray. You got the feeling as a first-year Bible school student that if Miss Dixon were praying for you, you could do anything because Miss Dixon was praying for you. There were times when I thought that God would actually do something against His own will just because Helen Dixon asked Him to do it, that she had that much pull with the throne of grace. She prayed for alumni who had been serving on the mission field for 40 years. She prayed for all of the students at the Bible College all of the instructors, all of the missionaries that the school had sent out. She prayed for the concerns of all of those students, and we were told that she prayed for all of us at least once a week by name. She prayed for people she had never met. This woman, for her breathing was just as easy as prayer. Now, not all of us are Helen Dixons. Is that not the truth? We struggle with that, don't we? We struggle for a number of different reasons. For some of us, our struggle goes back to sin issues. We love our time, we love our treasures, we love our things, we love a hundred things more than we do God. And so prayer just gets pushed to the back burner. Sometimes prayer for some of us is awkward. I remember as a brand new believer, praying and thinking to myself, does God hear this? Why does this seem like a one-sided conversation? Do I have any confidence that He's actually going to be listening to me? He's got a lot of things to deal with, and Jim Osmond is not on the top of his priority list. Sometimes we feel like our prayers hit the ceiling and bounce back to us. Sometimes we feel like our prayers are pathetic and inadequate. Sometimes we feel like John Bunyan when he said, in any one of my prayers there is enough sin to damn the whole world. That's what I pray for. My distraction. 
And I, I pray, but I am distracted. And I pray, but I am, I lose focus. I know that as somebody who comes to this church on a regular basis, you would like to know that as an elder, that prayer for me is as easy as breathing. But I confess to you that it is not. Prayer is something that I have to work at. Prayer is something that I have to discipline myself to. Prayer is something that I have to work on. There is something about me that is not hardwired in such a way that makes prayer easy. I have a hard time sitting still. My brain has a hard time sitting still. And it wanders. It, it, it is always going at breakneck speed. Sometimes it stays on track. Sometimes, it, most of the time, it doesn't. But my mind is constantly going, and I'm easily distracted. That's why I can't read a novel. I pick up a novel and I start reading and the sentence starts about this tree that this person is sitting under and before the author has described the tree in the novel, my mind has gone from that tree to my trees to my peach tree which is going to be right just before football season. Oh yeah, I need to get the schedule. Look at the schedule. I wonder how my team's going to do this year. They did good in the draft. Speaking of the draft, was I just reading about a tree? That's my mind. It wanders around like a poorly dressed vagrant holding a sign that says we'll work for food. And if you came here thinking that you were going to get help with that, I can't offer you any. Because there's no magic bullet, there's no secret, there's no one-size-fits-all cure for the struggle with prayer. There just isn't. I've come to the conclusion that prayer is growing in prayer is just a matter of growing in holiness. It's easier for me to pray now than it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago when I got saved. But it's still not as easy as it will be when I'm 80. And people like Miss Dixon, people like Paul, people like Andrew Murray, those type of people can tend to intimidate us and discourage us. And we look at them and think, man, I'll never have a prayer life like that. It'll never be as easy for me as it is for them. But I would venture to say that even at 80 years old, Miss Dixon, if you were to sit down and ask her, she would say, my prayer life is not what I want it to be. Now that's discouraging. But it's also encouraging, is it not? Because for all of us, that's the way it should be. Our prayer life just should not be what we hope or want it to be, and it will never be that way until we are actually taken out of this world. Well, we have an example of prayer in Philippians chapter 1, and I hope you have your Bibles open to that. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 11 of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, the first 11 verses are sort of Paul's introduction. We've looked at his statement of assurance. I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. We looked at verses 7 and 8, which is Paul's statement of his affection. I want you to know I have you on my heart. I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. And now in verses 9 through 11, we have the apostle's appeal, his prayer. He wants them to know what it is that he is praying for them for. And in those uh, first, in those three verses, I have identified three major requests that Paul was making on behalf of the Philippians. Now here's what I want this passage to do for you. I don't want this passage to discourage you or to intimidate you. I don't want you to read what is here and walk away saying, man, I'll never be like that. I can never attain that. So why bother? That, that's not the point. The point is to look at what Paul prayed and then to say, okay, this is something that I can strive toward. I can try to discipline myself for the purpose of godliness and grow in the area of prayer just like I focus on growing in every other area of my Christian life. Prayer is like every area of the Christian life. It requires discipline. It requires focus. And it's a process of growth. Now, before we look at the details of the prayer, I want to give you two general observations about the prayer itself. First one is this. It is interesting to me, and even convicting, to be honest with you, what Paul does not pray for. What he does not pray for. What is absent from the prayer is almost as significant as the things that he does pray for. 
What you'll notice as we go through this is that the Apostle Paul does not spend time praying for things, the bulk of things that take up the bulk of, of my prayer life and your life, or tend to. Almost en- entirely absent from the prayer is any physical request. Paul doesn't pray, say, I'm praying for safe travel. He doesn't say, I'm praying for church growth. He doesn't say, I'm praying that your physical needs will be met. All of those things are absent. He doesn't pray for any of those things. Now, that doesn't mean that praying for those things is wrong. But listen, we tend to neglect the spiritual elements of prayer and begin to focus on the things that are physical and temporal. And Paul doesn't do that. It's not wrong to pray for safe travel or provision or things of that nature. Somebody would have wisdom to make a right decision or get a job or be provided this or provided that. That's not wrong. Peter says, cast all your cares on the Lord. But what we ought to do is understand that, look, there's a whole dimension to our prayer life that we may be missing out on, and maybe we should begin to focus on some of these things in addition to the things that we're already focused on. Maybe our priority should not be safe travel and physical well-being, but maybe our priority should be these spiritual things that Paul is going to enumerate. We could focus on those things. Second, general observation about the prayer itself is that this is a very gospel-centered or gospel-oriented prayer. You look at verse 5 of chapter 1, you find out that our fellowship is in the gospel. You go down to chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, and he talks about the gospel and how the gospel is the central focus, even in his imprisonment and his suffering. Then you get down to verse 27, and he prays or asks that they would have conduct that is fitting for the gospel. At the center of chapter 1 is the priority of the gospel. The individual who can say, to live is Christ, is the individual who has at the center of their affections the center of their life, the center of their focus, the center of everything, the gospel. That is what it means to live Christ. It is to have the gospel of Christ as the central essence of everything that you are and everything that you do. So if the gospel is the center of our fellowship, the center of our suffering, and the center of our conduct, we should not be surprised to find out in verses 9-11 to that the gospel really is at the center of this prayer, and it is. Everything that Paul prays for, is to advance the work and the progress of the gospel in the lives of these Philippians. The gospel is at the center of this prayer. Now let's look at the details. I told you there are three things specifically that he prays for. The first one is in verse 9. He prays for an abounding love. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment. He prays that their love may grow, that it may abound. And he actually puts it in a progressive present tense which means that he wants their love to continue to grow and to continue to overflow continually. Now notice that the Apostle Paul doesn't specify whether he's talking about their love for each other, their love for him, or their love for God. What kind of love is Paul talking about when he says, I pray that your love may abound? He doesn't limit it and say, I'm praying that your love for God may abound, or your love for each other, or your love for me. It's just your love. So Paul has in mind all of their love, their love for everything. He wants that one characteristic, that one quality which defines the Christian not to just exist in moderation, but to exist in abundance. I pray that it would abound, that it would overflow, that it would overflow its boundaries and grow. Now it's not, the problem is not that the Philippians didn't have love. Do you think they lacked love? They didn't, did they? They had given to Paul's ministry, they had been praying for Paul, they had sent Epaphroditus, to minister to Paul and send a gift with Epaphroditus to provide for his needs. They didn't lack love. And Paul's not reproving them as in suggesting that they needed to increase in love because it wasn't there. Paul is just simply saying that love that you already have, 
I want it to abound still more and more, to overflow and to continue to grow. Does there ever come a time when you have too much love? Have you ever met a Christian where you say, you know what, I think he loves too much. That's his problem. He loves too much. You ever met somebody who that's true of? Never have, have you? Now, you might meet some schmarmy, hyper-emotional, hyper-sentimental person and say that person, you wouldn't say he loves too much, you just say he emotes too much. That would be your, that would be your criticism, but not that they love too much. You can't love too much. So Paul says, as long as you're alive, I want your love to continue and increase and abound. By the way, that's something you can pray for your fellow believers in the pews in front of you and around you. You could, when you pray for somebody specifically by name, pray that their love may abound. That they may grow in their love for each other, in their love for God, and their love for Christ's church, that their love may abound still more and more. But look at the qualifiers that Paul puts on it. That their love may abound in what? In real knowledge and all discernment. That their love may abound in real knowledge. Epignosis is the word. It's the word for knowledge. It didn't mean common knowledge like how to tie your shoes or how to make souffle. It meant a spiritual knowledge, a knowledge of God, a knowledge of spiritual things, a knowledge of moral things, a knowledge of Christ. This knowledge is only available through the Word of God and the revelation of God Himself. This is knowledge that you and I can only pick up through Scripture, through studying Scripture and reading Scripture. So Paul is saying, I want your, I want your love to abound or overflow in knowledge in a right knowledge of who God is and a right knowledge of God's Word. Now you're going to see where Paul's going with this in just a second. Notice the second qualifier. In all discernment. Aesthesis is the word. It's the word from which we get our word aesthetic. And our English word aesthetic has to do with taking something and looking at it and judging its beauty based upon our preferences or our standards or our likes and our dislikes. We might say something has an aesthetic quality. This Greek word for discernment, asthesis, doesn't mean judging by our standards. It means to discern something biblically or spiritually. It means to have a high level of biblical, theological, moral, and spiritual perception. It means to be able to look at a situation and to make a right assessment of that situation, to judge it, to discern it, to look at it judicially and with wisdom, and to evaluate whether it is aesthetic biblically, whether it meets biblical qualifications and biblical standards of beauty. That is what discernment means. It's almost, it kind of has the idea of tactfulness. You look at a situation, have you ever met somebody who is in a difficult situation, somebody comes to them, somebody says something, and they're able to assess the situation quickly, just like that, and then to, with discernment and with tact, handle that situation wonderfully. Have you ever met somebody like that? That's the type of discernment that Paul is talking about. I want your love to abound in all knowledge and all discernment. Now you say, Jim, I understand what knowledge means and what discernment means. How does this apply? How am I to apply this? What does, what does knowledge tempered with, sorry, love tempered with knowledge and discernment look like? Let me illustrate it for you. You're flipping through the channels. You come across a television program and it's Benny Hinn. And you find out that Benny Hinn has a ministry in Mexico next month. And he's going to be giving out eyeglasses, shoes, socks, whatever, to Mexican children who are hard to do. And you have a burden for Mexico. You've always loved Mexico, and if you could ever be a missionary, you'd be a missionary to Mexico because you have a burden for those people, and you love those people. And so you are and so you think, well, the best thing I could do right now is to help out Benny Hinn. So you rush out to your mailbox, you mail in a check, send it off to Benny Hinn Ministries. You might evidence a love, but it's not a love that's tempered with knowledge and discernment. Do you see the difference? 
Say as a church we have a love for the lost and we want to reach the lost. So we send out flyers and we put out advertisements. All pagans, welcome to come to Kootenai Community Church. This Sunday the pastor is going to preach in his swimming trunks and nothing else. And we are going to get away with the, do away with the hymns. We're going to have uh, Beach Boys numbers and some Creedence Clearwater Revival. And we're going to celebrate the hot days of summer. And that's what we're going to sing. And we're going to have some movie clips from some old Beach Boys type movies and beach movies and surfing videos and quick short message. We're going to hand out iced coffee lattes to everybody. Everybody's going to be comfortable. Come bring your umbrella, your beach towel. It's a beach theme. We're going to get in there. We're going to get rid of everything offensive and just bring people in. That might evidence a love for the lost, but it's not a love that's tempered with knowledge and discernment, is it? Friends, somebody who has love without knowledge and discernment can be led astray doctrinally just like that. They can look at somebody's lifestyle and say, I don't want to judge them or I don't want to seem unleavening, so I'm not going to condemn that as sin. You ever met somebody like that? They don't want to call sin, sin. They don't want to say something is wrong because they don't want to appear to be unloving. That's not the type of love that Paul's talking about. The type of love that Paul's talking about is not a blind love. It's not an ignorant love. It's not an undiscerning love. It is a wise and judicial love that says, I'm going to love, but my love is going to be expressed with all knowledge and all discernment so that in the end, I don't end up doing things that do more harm than good. And a person with love and no discernment and knowledge might have all the eagerness and the best motives in the world. But they end up doing more harm than good in the end because the love is not tempered with wisdom and a right knowledge of God and right understanding and that discernment. That's why you and I all know people. Listen, we all know people who are otherwise sound and they have a love and a zeal for God, but they go to the wackiest, most off-base, most apostate churches in the whole world. And you ask, what is the problem? The problem is not that they don't have love. The problem is that they have love, but they don't have a right knowledge and all discernment that Paul is talking about. He wants us to have a judicial love. He prays for abounding love. Second, the Apostle Paul prays for authentic character. Authentic character. Abounding love and authentic character. Look at verse 10. Paul says, So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. That you may approve the things that are excellent. Dakimazo is the word approve. It was used of testing metals or testing coins for their purity and their authenticity. That's the word that Paul uses. Paul says, I want you to have that real knowledge and that discernment so that you might be able to test every situation. Like we test metal to, to guarantee its authenticity and its purity. Like we test coins to guarantee their authenticity and their purity. So I want you to test these things and thus approve them. So when a metal was tested and it was proved to be authentic or genuine, then it would be approved and they would approve it. That's the word that Paul uses. He wants us to test things. That takes knowledge and discernment, does it not? And then to approve or to give our stamp of authenticity to those things that are excellent. And the word means to those things which differ in value. It was a word that was used to describe if you had two things that were very similar, but one was of greater value because it had something on it that marked it as different and set it apart from all the rest. That was something that you would call excellent. It was set apart from the rest because it was more valuable. That's what Paul's saying. I want you to be able to put your stamp of approval on those things that are of highest value, the priorities, not the secondary things, the primary things. And friends, this is a very applicable, very relevant, very down-to-earth prayer, because listen, 
Every day you and I are faced with decisions. Do I give my time, my talents, and my treasure to this thing or to this thing? And sometimes both of them are good, but one of them is better. And what Paul is saying is I want you to be able to discern those things in your life which are of the most value and give your attention to them and your approval to them. So that if you have a choice to do two things, to be in two different places, that you might be able to look, I've got this one which is good and this one which is good, but this one is better and more excellent. Paul is basically saying, I want you to give your approval to the priorities, not the secondary things. Sometimes the good is the enemy of the best. Sometimes the good detracts from us doing things which are the best. Not wrong in and of themselves, but Paul says, I want you to have the kind of discernment and the knowledge which would give approval to those things which are most excellent. And all of this so that you and I might be two things, sincere and blameless in the day of Christ Jesus. The word sincere there is one of my favorite Greek words, even even more favorite than spaknon. The word sincere there was a word that uh, came from two Greek, two different Greek words. Heli, meaning son, and krines, meaning to test or to judge. And the word hile krines literally meant to judge by the sun. And here's how the word was used. In Paul's day in Rome, you would have men who made, men and women who made pottery and sold the pottery. Now if you went down to the pottery store and you wanted to buy a piece of pottery, you could buy one of two different types of pottery. You could buy really thick, clunky, heavy, bulky pottery. It was cheap. Or you could buy fine pottery, which was very thin and very light. And the finer pottery was far more difficult to make because it was fragile. And oftentimes in the the uh, kilning process, kilning is not the word, what do they call it? Firing process. In firing the pottery, the piece of pottery would develop cracks in it. Now a reputable dealer would throw out the cracked pottery, but some of the more unscrupulous pottery dealers would take a hard wax and they would fill the cracks in with wax. And then they would gloss over the outside or paint over the outside. And the only way, if you're walking through the street, the only way you could tell if something was a, a good pot or a bad pot is you would hold that up to the sun. And you would judge it by the sun. Because as the sun came through the pottery, it would display where the cracks are because the wax was of darker color than the clay. Now some of the more reputable pottery dealers would actually take, and on their pottery they would stamp, Sine sire, which is a Latin word for without wax. It was the word that meant sincere. We get our English word sincere from that. That's what sincerely means. It means without wax. Now you know why I sign my newsletter articles without wax. Because it literally means sincerely. It means that there is no glossing over defects. This life is sun-tested. It's been held up to the sun. And if there are cracks there, you can see them because we haven't glossed them over. That's what a sincere Christian life looks like. It's not a life where you say, yeah, I've got cracks, but I'm going to fill them full of wax and pass it off like everything is okay on the outside. That's insincerity. A sincere life is a life without wax. It is a life that is whole. It is a life that is pure. It is a life without sort of any kind of exterior deception that is used to trick people into thinking that you're something that you're not. If you're a deceitful individual and you gloss yourself over while you're sinning Monday through Saturday, and then you come here on Sunday and you try and pass yourself off as the genuine article, you've got all kinds of wax filling the cracks. And Paul says, I want you to be sincere. I want you to be without wax. I want you to be sun-tested. Something that somebody could hold up to the light and the cracks are visible, not because they've been filled in with wax to deceive people, but because you are what you are. That's what sincerely means. Without wax. What you see is what you get. A sincere Christian life. 
that you may have the type of love that abounds in knowledge and discernment so that you could approve the things that are excellent in order that you might be without wax and blameless. Blameless literally meant without stumbling. And it was used in two ways, of not causing others to stumble and not stumbling yourself into sin. That's the type of Christian life that you pursue to live. You pursue a sincere and blameless Christian life. Now, it doesn't mean that you can be perfect. That's not what sincere and blameless means. It doesn't mean that you reach a level where you're perfect. But it means that you live a life that is open. And you're not hiding anything. And you're not trying to cover it up. And you're not trying to deceive people. And you're not out causing people to sin and then coating it over with wax to pass yourself off on Sunday mornings as something that you're not. Sincere and blameless when? Till the day of Christ Jesus. This is the second time now that Paul's mentioned the day of Christ. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 6, I'm confident in this very thing, that he who began the good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul is looking forward to that day when Christ is revealed and we will be revealed with him in glory to the second coming of the Lord. And he says, I want you to live a sincere and a blameless Christian life until the day of Christ in light of the day of Christ. In other words, the day of Christ Jesus is that day which sort of stands ahead of us and over us, and we do everything that we do in light of that day, so that we may stand before God sincere and blameless, not waxed over and full of sin, but sincere and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus. I want you to notice something, and this is, I think, significant. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, that since God is the author of salvation, that He is also the finisher of salvation. That what God begins, He finishes. But now here in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul is actually praying that you would do something that he already knows God has guaranteed is going to happen. Do you catch that? Paul is praying that you would live in such a way that God has already guaranteed you're going to be. He, You are already going to be sincere and blameless on the day of Christ because what God begins, He completes. But then Paul says, I want you to live that out and have a sincere and blameless Christian life. So here's the question. Whose job is it to present me faultless before His throne with exceeding grace and exceeding joy? Is it something that I do and I'm responsible to do or is it something that God does? Which is it? It is both. Chapter 1, verse 6. I am confident that God is going to complete this. And so I pray that you will live a sincere and blameless Christian life until the day of Christ Jesus. Why? Because it's your responsibility to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, and it is my confidence that God is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So it's not one or the other, it's both. Paul prays for abounding love, authentic character, and third, he prays for abundant fruit. Look at verse 11 having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The fruit of righteousness is a term, a phrase that Paul sort of lifted out of the Old Testament. It was used in Amos. It was used in uh, the book of Proverbs. The fruit of righteousness is a tree of life. The fruit is not righteousness in and of itself. The fruit is the product of righteousness. Now the righteousness that Paul is talking about is not righteous conduct per se, The righteousness that Paul is talking about is imputed righteousness. That righteousness that he describes in Philippians chapter 3, where he says, I have a righteousness that's not my own. It's given to me on the basis of faith. So what Paul is asking here in chapter 1, verses verse 11, is that we may produce and abound in fruit, products of that righteousness. That is to say that that right standing that I have with God and that right relationship that I have with God, which is given to me on the basis of faith and imputed to my account, when that is lived out in my day-to-day life, 
and I am active in producing, then I'm active in producing the fruit of righteousness. So it's those things, it's godly actions, godly deeds, acts of service, godly character, authentic character, works of service and giving glory and worship. All of that is the fruits of righteousness. It is the product of what comes as a result of being righteous in God's sight. We don't produce fruit in order to be made righteous. We produce fruit because we are righteous. Do you understand the difference between those two? We don't produce the fruit in order to get the righteousness. And the fruit is not the righteousness in and of itself. The fruit is all of those things that come out of a righteous life. All of the things that we do in service and honoring to God. And Paul says that that fruit, that fruit of righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. Lest for one instant you begin to think that this is something that you produce. Look what Paul says. It comes through Jesus Christ. It's not something that I do. I I can't manifest fruit on me and in my life. That is something that God has to do through Jesus Christ. It's not our work. It's His work. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's justification and righteousness. And you are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you would do. That's the fruits of the righteousness. We're saved by grace and we produce the fruits of righteousness. And those fruits, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, were prepared by God beforehand. Before I ever got saved, He had prepared things for me to do to honor and glorify Him. It comes through Jesus Christ. Look at the end of verse 11, to the praise and glory of God. Isn't that the whole purpose of the fruit? Jesus said, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. That's why Paul says, I want you to overflow with fruit. To abound with fruit. I want you to be so productive and so and so prolific in the production of fruit in you. And I'm praying that God would produce, through Jesus Christ, those fruits of your righteous standing in the sight of God. That it may abound and be abundant in your life, all to the praise of His glorious grace. Because it's He that does it, He gets the credit and He gets the glory for anything good that is done. And isn't the glory of God the end result of everything that you were created for and redeemed for? To give Him glory and honor? Why do you want to produce fruit in your Christian life? Do you want to produce it so that other people will notice? Other people will see it? You know, that's not why I want to produce fruit. I don't want to produce fruit in my Christian life so that other people look at me and say, wow, look at that Jim Osmond. He's fruity, isn't he? He's got He's got more fruit than you could ever possibly hope for. That's not why I want to produce fruit in my Christian life. The whole goal of everything that we do as believers is not for other people, but for the praise and the glory of God. That's a comprehensive prayer, isn't it? It's a very practical prayer. You know somebody who's struggling with a decision that they need to make? Don't pray that God would give them a sign. Pray that God would give them a real knowledge and all discernment so that their love may abound in that and that then they may approve and judge those things which are more excellent and make a decision based upon that. Do you know somebody who's struggling with a sin? Then what you need to do is you need to pray that they might approve those things that are excellent and that they might be blameless and sincere without wax until the coming of the day of Jesus Christ and that they may live in such a way that will honor God. Do you know somebody who's apathetic and not producing anything in their Christian life but just kind of modeling along, doing not much of anything? Then what you need to do is you need to pray that God would create through them the fruit of their righteous standing and that that may abound and be abundant still more and more, all to the praise of His glorious grace. That's a very practical prayer. It's a very comprehensive prayer. Do you notice how Paul prays for their affections, what they love? He prays for their character, who they are, and he prays for their fruit, what they do. It's a very comprehensive prayer. 
There's almost no part of your person that is untouched by that prayer. You pray that somebody's affections would be right, that their character would be holy, and that their fruit would be abundant, and you've touched basically everything in their life. Everything that's of significance. And it's a very God-centered prayer. Do you know what Paul did? Notice that Paul does not pray that they would live their best life now. I pray that you'd understand your purpose and live a purpose-driven life or your best life now. He doesn't pray for that at all. What does he pray for? Everything he prays is very God-oriented, all for the glory of God. You find out at the end of chapter 1 that they were undergoing persecution and affliction. And Paul doesn't even ask that they would be spared from persecution and suffering. Is that negligence of the highest order? Or is that a right priority? I don't pray that God would alleviate your suffering, but that you might honor and glorify Him in the midst of the suffering. In Ephesians chapter 6, while he was in prison, Paul didn't say, pray for my release. He simply said, pray that I may have boldness to speak as I ought to speak while I'm a prisoner. It's a very God-oriented prayer. It doesn't matter whether you're suffering or whether you're under affliction or whether you're in prison. What matters is that God may be glorified. And so when you pray for somebody, you pray a very God-oriented prayer. God, be glorified through what is happening with this person. And if it's your will, then alleviate the suffering. But I know your will is to glorify yourself. So glorify yourself in this situation. It's a God-oriented, God-focused prayer. Now what would happen to our fellowship in the Gospel and our fellowship in grace if we all prayed this way for each other and for other Christians? What would happen? What would happen to our fellowship in the Gospel and our fellowship of grace if we all prayed that our love for each other would abound more and more? What would happen to our fellowship if we all prayed that we would live holy and blameless lives, pure lives, sincere lives, wax-free lives in the presence of God until the day of Christ Jesus? What would that do for our fellowship? What would it do for our oneness and our fellowship together if we prayed for each other on Friday nights, on Sunday mornings, whenever we're involved in service, that the fruit that is produced as a result of what we do would be abundant and abounding all to the glory and the praise of God and that He would do through us and create through us in Christ more abundantly anything that we could ever ask or imagine. What would happen? Friends, it would be transforming. So I ask you this. Let's pray. Let's pray for each other this way. Let's pray for our ministries this way. Pray for our missionaries this way. Pray for Awana this way. Pray for Sunday school this way. Pray for your elders this way. Pray for one another this way. If somebody brings across a need that you have on the prayer chain or somebody raises something in a Sunday school class, don't immediately just think of alleviating the physical realities of the situation. But ask yourself, how can I pray for their love, for their character, and for their fruit in order that God may be glorified through this and that He would be honored through what happens? Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank You for Your tremendous grace in Christ. Thank You that salvation is all Your work and that You are completing in us what You began back in eternity past when You loved us and set Your affection upon us. And we can only ask, God, that You would encourage us this morning in our own prayer lives, in our own walk of grace, in our walk in disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And Lord, that You would give to us that type of abounding love for You, for each other, for Your purposes that it would be tempered with knowledge, tempered with wisdom, that we may be able to discern between truth and error the good and the best, and that we may give our approval, our judgment, and our time and our talents to those things which are most excellent. Lord, that You would purify from us every false and wicked way, and that we might walk before You and before each other 
in sincerity, without deception, without cover-up, and blameless, not sinning ourselves and not sinning against others by having them sin, in order that we may stand faultless before your throne with exceeding joy. We have as our confidence that you are willing to answer these prayers because we know that it's your desire to be glorified through us. And so we pray that you would cause us to abound in our service and in the fruit which comes through our righteous standing before you, all to the praise of Jesus Christ and your glory. We ask this today in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.